0: Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to go to their time of worship upstairs. And I will tell you that for this Sunday, we are actually going to be sending the kids over to the upstairs of that building. And so, parents, um, make sure after the service, you will need to go to the upstairs of the Family Life Center to pick up your children if you haven't checked them in you can go out in the lobby and check them in now otherwise you can just pick them up um, upstairs at the end of the service and um, I'll go ahead and address the elephant in the room and the reason why we are sending the kids to that building Um, we did have a small fire in this room um, last night and this morning and um, it's my fault so I'm going to come clean for a second here Um, Our Advent candles, uh, which AJ and Carson lit for us um, every year, what we do is with brand new candles, we light them a little bit to make sure the wick is easier to light in service. I was here yesterday. I did that and uh, did not fully extinguish all of the candles. And so the uh, candles burned down, the wooden holder that they were in burned up, the plastic wreath that was around them is not that one. It melted yesterday, and um, that's why you smell burning plastic right now. So, that was completely my fault, and so I'm sorry about the odor in this. Um, We are grateful that we're able to worship in this building. Um, I made a big mistake and it could have been a lot worse. So God definitely protected us from further harm in this building Um, from that. I will say though, um, if the smell is bothering you, we are currently live streaming our service into the other building in the youth room on the big screen in there. And so if at any point this bothers you to such an extent that you feel like you need to get out of this room, Totally understand no judgment here it 's my fault if you get up and walk off i 'm just going to assume that you're going over there to uh, to watch the service in in the next room. Um, but thank you um, I just want to say thank you to the staff, the security. The tech guys, everybody showed up a little bit early to uh, help address the problem and uh, do some cleanup in this room, and uh, we did actually have the fire department this morning out here because of the smoke in the room, um, but God provided. God God blessed and uh, protected us, so thank you for being here, and if you're watching at home, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I just confessed, so now you know, um, In the lobby, AJ already referenced it. If you haven't gotten one of these, and we may have run out, I'm not not sure how many we even printed, um, but we have these devotional guides for you. If you didn't get one today, we'll have some more for you tomorrow and next week. Um, You will have the opportunity to read along with your church family this devotional guide every day, well, five days a week for the next four weeks of Advent. Advent is a season of anticipation, of waiting, for the coming of Messiah. And ancient Israel knew full well what it was like to wait and wait and wait for the coming redemption of the Messiah. But for us as Christians who live 2,000 years after the birth of the Messiah, maybe we don't have the same level of longing and anticipation. Advent is a uh, four week season of time where we can practice that waiting, that longing, that anticipation of what it means to wait for the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah. And so these have, um, this is the first two weeks of a devotional. Two weeks from today on the 12th, uh, part two will be available to you. So go ahead and take part one, and it will give you two weeks of devotional. It also, as AJ pointed out, has the scriptures for the candles that will be lit the next couple of Sundays. And, And if you would just prayerfully follow through. And uh, some of these will have lots of scripture and will be just devotionals written on a couple of key verses. Some of them will will tell a little bit of the story of Christmas and look at it through a different lens. Um, I wrote the majority of them, but we have some other elders that contributed and staff, and that will be true of part two as well. So I just pray that this would be a blessing and an enhancement to your worship um, in this season. If you'll see on page three in there, it also has the title for the message for today. I don't have um, a notes page for you. My um, Sunday morning was a little bit unexpected, and so I did not print uh, note-taking pages, but you can take both uh, notes in the back of this book if you so choose. This Sunday, and for the next four weeks, we're taking a break from Luke to ask some hard questions, and hopefully to arrive at some level of answer together. Uh, This series we're calling Questioning Christmas, and the purpose of it is to really allow this season of time to move us towards reflection, toward reflection upon what is most important, and to get us to not run from the questions, the doubts or the concerns we might have, but to actually run into the questions and to seek answers from Scripture and from God's Holy Spirit. And so the questions for this um, next month will be, for today, why do I hurt? Why is there still so much evil in this world if the Prince of Peace has truly come? Next week will be the question of, can I really trust what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus? Can I trust what the New Testament documents reveal to us about the God who has come as Emmanuel? Uh, The week following will be, is it true that Jesus is actually the only way towards relationship with God, or could there be other ways that God might reveal himself to man? And then finally, the last week will be, how can I be sure that Jesus really did come for me, that I'm a part of his plan and a part of his kingdom? And so I would encourage you to um, invite people along in this journey with us as we ask some of these hard questions and as we really seek the truth of God's word. i also tell you, uh, this Christmas season, we have a few extra events coming on Sunday night, um, December the 12th, we have a caroling night. And for that, we have two sign-up sheets in the uh, lobby. One is to sign up to have people come to your home, to carol. And one is to sign up to meet here and then go to other people's homes to carol. And so you can sign up for either part of that event on uh, December the 12th. And then on December 19th, we'll all be in this room for a bluegrass Christmas night. And we're just going to get together, we're going to sing, and we're going to worship and sing carols um, of the season together. And then, of course, we will worship together on Christmas Eve the 24th. So now I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to thank God for his provision. And uh, when I come out of the prayer, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 2, the Christmas story, to ask the question of why such evil persists in a world to which the Prince of Peace has come. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory and the honor for this morning. Uh, we are reminded this morning that through your great provision, we are assembled here today as one body, filled with your presence. The Spirit is here with us, in us, to bless us and to show us your way. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would move freely in and among us today. God, I thank you for protecting this facility as what could have happened um, was far worse than what did happen. And it is by your grace that we are able to meet here this morning, assemble for worship. And Father, I thank you for each and every person that has made their way into this building. For the, for the kids that have now gone to their time of kids' worship, Father, I pray that you would speak through each and every volunteer that is there serving um, and giving their time to those wonderful young children. I pray that the truth of the gospel would be made clear. And in this room, Father, I pray that the truth of the gospel would be made clear as we lean into the hard, as we lean into suffering and pain. And as we seek your solutions, not our own clever answers, but Father, your solution and your work, your action in the midst of our pain and suffering that we experience. So Father, meet with us today as we are here to hear from you. Spirit, move among us to enliven us by your spirit. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. On July 9th, 1861, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great American poet, was awakened with a surprise from a nap. His wife was coming into the room screaming because her dress was on fire. And I promise this was an illustration before I almost lit the church on fire. But, the, but his wife, Fanny, ran into the room with her dress on fire, pleading for help. And Longfellow grabbed a rug multiple rugs, to try to snuff out the flames. He eventually threw her on the ground and jumped on top of her to try to snuff out the flames, and he was ultimately successful, and yet the injuries that she sustained were significant. In the days following, she passed away in the hospital due to her injuries. And he lived with that great trauma and pain. Two years later, his son Charles left the home without him knowing. Charles snuck away, to join the Union Army to participate in the Civil War. And then, only a few months after that, early December of 1863, uh, Longfellow received a telegram saying that his son had been injured. And in fact, the doctors were concerned about paralysis. See, Charles had been shot in the shoulder, and the bullet traveled from in one shoulder and out the other, and along the way did damage to the spinal cord. And so he was confined to a hospital bed and the doctors were unsure if he would be able to move his limbs again. And so three weeks after his son came home and was in the hospital recovering, never knowing if he would walk again, three weeks after that, two and a half years after the sudden passing of his wife as he watched and tried to help, Christmas Day came. And in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he awoke on Christmas Day and he heard church bells ringing and he heard choirs singing. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this dissonance that this great poet was experiencing caused him to take pen to paper and write a famous poem that became the Christmas carol we know as I heard the bells on Christmas Day. This is what he first went to write. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, "Peace on earth, goodwill to men." Then from each black accursed mouth, the thunder or the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was an, as if an earthquake rent the heartstones of a continent, and made forlorn. forlorn the households born of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You can hear in those lines, Longfellow struggling through. As he talks about the the black accursed mouth, he's talking about cannons firing in the south He's talking about an earthquake breaking apart the continent in the Civil War. He's talking about pain. He's talking about hate overcoming good. And he says, in frustration, there is no peace on earth. But then in the final stanza, hope shines through. He says, the bells continued. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, we talk a lot about Christmas being a season of joy, of peace, of hope. And yet Christmas is also for all of us a season of pain at times, a season of suffering. A season where we're reminded, as we gather with family and experience joy, we're reminded also of the pain and grief of family members that have been lost. A season where we remember things as they used to be and despair at things as they are. Christmas actually highlights our losses and highlights our grief. And this is the the occasion into which this famous song is written to, to fight back to push back against the darkness. And what Longfellow is saying is as the song continued, as the choir continued, as the bells continued, it continued to remind him in the midst of despair, the choir still sang, the bells still rang, and it brought him to the point of remembrance that in the end, God is not asleep. And in the end, the right will prevail and the wrong shall fail. And there is peace on earth, and there will be goodwill to men. And so we ask this question at Christmas for this reason. We ask the question of evil. We ask the question of suffering. Why, if the Prince of Peace has come, do we experience so much evil and suffering in this world? We ask this because right now, in a time of great spiritual sensitivity, recognizing the birth of Jesus, which gives us warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Right? gives us hope, helps us to remember as we sing those carols that we've sung since we were children, we remember the hope and the joy, joy to the world. The king has come. And yet, we still live in a context of great pain, a society of great division, a world of great evil and sin and suffering, a world full of sickness and disease. And so, I'm going to lean in to the hardest part of the Christmas story this morning. The Christmas story is beautiful. We've all read it a hundred times. Matthew 2, Luke 1 and 2, so much great stuff in there. Luke 1 and 2 tells the story of of the angel first coming to Elizabeth and then the angel coming to, to Mary, of Joseph's dream, of Mary going to visit Elizabeth, of the angel showing up to the shepherds, of the trip to Bethlehem, all those beautiful things are contained in Luke 1 and 2. Matthew doesn't record much of any of that. Actually, he doesn't record any of that. (coughs) Excuse me. What Matthew records is the coming of the wise men, and they show up late. They're after the fact. And when the wise men show up, they show up because of a star that they've seen. And the first place the wise men go is not to the manger, is not to Bethlehem. The first place the wise men go is to Jerusalem. They go and speak to King Herod because they see that a star in the sky represents a king has been born in Israel. So they go to Herod and say, show us the new king. We have come from afar because we know a new king has been born. So then Herod says, gee, I don't know any." thing about this. So Herod asks, this is all Luke 2, 1 through uh, 8 or 9 is where I'm referencing now. Uh, verse 3, let's start there. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Where is the Messiah to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod summoned the wise men to find out when the star had appeared and to tell them, go to Bethlehem. And we know what happens next, right? The wise men go, they find Jesus, they find Mary, gold, frankincense, myrrh, worship celebration, it's beautiful, right? It's all good. (coughs) Can you give me that water? But then, thank you, give me a second. But then something happens. After after they go to see the baby, after they go to worship Jesus, the wise men are warned in a dream that something is not right with Herod, that Herod has a plan and a plan for evil. And so in this moment, God steps in God steps in with a messenger to prevent evil. And look what he does. Excuse me. God sends an angel to Joseph. Rise, take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy them. So here's the problem. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. How was he tricked by the wise men? They went back a different way. They didn't tell him what they saw. Joseph and Jesus and Mary fled to Egypt. And so then the wise men go back a different way. Herod realizes they didn't come back like they told me they would. What is going on here? Herod became furious. So Christmas is about joy, sure. Christmas is about hope. We just lit the candle of hope. But Christmas also contains this incredible story of suffering. Every male child dead. That's what the Bible just told us. God intervened and rescued his son and took his son to Egypt. And yet, the mothers of Bethlehem We're grieving, we're weeping, we're lamenting because of the children that had perished. And this brings us to this question, why did God do it this way? Why did God allow such evil and suffering in the world that he has created? The original quote here in Matthew 2 is actually from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 15, and it has a different context that's important to understand. Uh, Rachel is not literally referring to Rachel the person, but rather the mother of the nation. And what is being described in Rachel weeping for her children is the events in Jeremiah where the people are being taken out of Jerusalem and going into exile in Babylon. And in that exile in Babylon, women and children are being separated. Mothers are being separated from their children. That's why the mothers are weeping and lamenting. And what does Rama have to do with it? Where is Rama? Here's the crazy thing Rama is a village that is on the route of the exile between Jerusalem and Babylon, and Rama is five miles, five miles from Jerusalem. And the image of both Jeremiah 31 and Matthew 2 is an image of such intense suffering that the weeping and wailing of mothers who have lost their children is heard five times miles away we are so used to the the beauty of these stories we need to recognize that with the coming of jesus there was great pain as well and so if we're going to offer hope at christmas to the lost to the perishing to those that need jesus (coughs) excuse me hope to those that are in despair We need to have an answer for the mothers of Bethlehem. We need to have an answer that could actually be sufficient to help those suffering in intense grief. So today, we're going to go deep into what's called the philosophical problem of evil. We're not going to be philosophers here today. We're going to look at the Bible. But as we look at the Bible, we're going to see three points of the biblical story that at least give us somewhat of an answer of what is God doing? of how we can understand God's purposes and plans in the midst of this great evil that we suffer. I'm not a philosopher. You're not a philosopher. So we'll use just a little bit of philosophy and a lot of Jesus and the Bible this morning. And I want to show you three points, three actions that God takes in relationship to evil that show us that even as we suffer, God has a plan that is unfolding. Because here's the thing. Let's get apologetic for a minute now. If you want to be an apologist and you want to argue with people that believe other worldviews or other explanations of reality, you've got to be real about the fact that every worldview has to explain reality as we see it. So every worldview has to explain why there is evil and suffering in this world. Uh, naturalism has to to explain it, secularism has to explain it, Buddhism, uh, Islam, Christianity. We all have to explain why do we experience such pain, suffering, and evil. And the starting point from the Scripture is actually helpful to see that the Bible predicts and expects us to suffer and experience evil. And the Bible does actually explain the origin of evil, And so we'll start there. Three actions that God takes in relationship to the suffering that we experience. God predicts suffering. God promises his presence in suffering. And God provides the ultimate solution to suffering. See, from Genesis to Revelation, God tells the story of a a good God who lovingly unfolds his plan of redemption for all people. But as he's unfolding the plan for all people, people suffer. The Bible is not inconsistent. It doesn't reveal a loving God who is unable to do anything to stop evil. The Bible consistently reveals a God who created a good world. Get that, point one. God predicts suffering, but under that, point one is that God created a good world. And God was not surprised when the world went bad. But it does not mean that God is the author of the evil that came into the world. What we recognize from God's sovereignty is God saw, and and surely God would have seen other ways to create the world, and yet God, in in his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty, he chose this world. He chose the world that we live in, the world that we experience. And he is not surprised by the events of our day. But when he chose to create, he chose knowing that one day his good world would be corrupted. And so if you want to get philosophical for a minute, let's get philosophical just for a minute here. From Augustine, who lived in the, in the 400s, from Augustine, the early Christian theologian and philosopher on, theologians have explained evil and God in this way, that evil is not a thing that has been like uh, in relationship to good as black and white are in relationship. See, sometimes we have this view of we're battling between good and evil as if this sort of cosmic dualism where we have to choose between the good thing and the evil thing. Augustine described evil not as black and white, but as light and dark. In the same way that dark is the absence of light, so evil is the absence of good. God created good things, good creations for good purposes, to bring honor and glory to him, to love him and to respond to him and to fulfill the purposes for which he created them. And when those good things fulfill other purposes other than that for which God created them, they're spoiled, they're corrupted, they go bad. And so evil enters the world not because it's a thing that God creates, but evil enters into the world because God's good creation chooses itself over God. That's what sin is. When we choose ourselves, our desires, our ways over God's ways. And therefore we violate the purpose for which He has created us and so spoil His creation. It's what Lucifer did. When Lucifer sought to raise himself up above God, sought to follow his own will, his own desires, instead of God, his creator, it's what Adam and Eve did when they sought to become like God. They put themselves first. They put the creation above the creator. And in so doing, they spoiled the creation. They spoiled and corrupted their own hearts. And through through that one sin by which this sin entered the world, so death and sin spread to all. Romans 5 tells us that as sin entered the world through one man, sin and death spread throughout all the world. But God had promised them, God had had warned them that he was the source of life and to turn away from him was to turn away from that very life. So evil enters the world not because God created this thing called evil. Evil enters the world because God's good creation chose itself and marred God's goodness and corrupted itself. But yet God knew that that would happen. And God, from the beginning, from the beginning of time, before he set the stars into motion, he had a purpose and plan for all of this. And yet, right now, we experience thorns and thistles, right? Because Genesis 1 says that all that God created was good. And he says it over and over and over. The land was good, the sea was good, the animals were good, the birds were good, the fish were good, the people were good. All was good. But then in Genesis 6, what God says about mankind is very different. In Genesis 6, the flood narrative, we see by that point, God is saying that every inclination of mankind's heart is evil all the time. So what happens between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6? The good creation was marred by choosing itself, by choosing its own way, by disobedience, that is where sin entered the world. And within one generation of sin entering the world, there is murder. And within only a few generations, God looks down and says, Mankind, my good creation, has been corrupted to such an extent that they are evil. And for that reason, we experience thorns and thistles in the ground. For that reason, we experience natural disasters, tsunamis, and earthquakes, and, and hurricanes, and all the rest. Because creation itself groans waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. For that reason, we experience disease. For that reason, we experience the decay of the human body. Because when sin entered the world to decay us in our souls and in our spirit, so our bodies have been decaying ever since. And Jesus predicts suffering for any of those who would follow him. And Paul predicts suffering for anyone who chooses to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The Bible that you hold It has an explanation for where evil came from. It came from the sinful heart of human beings who were created in God's image and yet were corrupted and turned away. But not only does God predict that suffering and evil will come, he promises us something in the midst of it. He promises himself. One way to look at the Bible, and I love to read the Bible this way, if you read the Bible and and you look at the themes that come out, if you ever read it in a year or read it chronologically, look at the way different themes are spelled out throughout the whole Bible. You can look at it with the kingdom of God and how you see the kingdom unfolding. You can look at it with covenants and how God is, is creating and, and how God is sustaining his people through the revelation of covenants. Look at you. Thanks. He doesn't get a raise for that. <laughs> he can keep his job for another week. We can, so we can look at kingdom, we can look at covenants, we can also look at God's presence. The unfolding narrative of scripture shows us how God's presence is being restored from one garden to another. You see, what was spoiled in the Garden of Eden is eventually being remade into the new garden city of the new heavens and the new earth. And the presence of God that was walking and talking with the first man and woman in Eden was spoiled. And God was not able to be present with his people because of their sin, because of their rejection of him. Their experience of his presence was spoiled. And yet, God unfolds throughout all of scripture a narrative that reveals his presence more and more. Let me show you what that means. When the people are in exile in Egypt, God is present with them. And God recognizes the nation has now grown and I want to be living amongst my people. I want to be living amongst my people in the land that I have chosen to give them. So what does he do? He sends his presence to one man, Moses, in the presence of a burning bush. And then he brings the people out of Egypt through miraculous means And he calls them to build a tent, a dwelling place for his presence. So all throughout this trip that they're traveling in the wilderness, God is dwelling in the midst of the people in a temporary residence, a big tent called the tabernacle, where God's presence is there with the people. When they enter into the land, God's presence takes up residence in a permanent residence, the the temple. The temple is built and God enters into the Holy of Holies within the temple now. And God's presence dwells with the people. And God's presence remains there even in the midst of Israel's disobedience until the very point when he allows the nation of Babylon to come in and and remove the people into exile. God's presence is there for protection for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of Israel until he removes his presence. And we see that in Ezekiel. And the people enter into exile. It's because... God is unfolding a story of how his presence is being restored to his people. And the tabernacle was never the ultimate plan. The temple was never the ultimate plan. As he's removing his presence in the season of the prophets, he's also promising his presence is going to come in more fullness. And A.J. read it for us this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the very son of God, is a fuller revelation of the presence of God than the temple was. And in the midst of the people suffering, God sends himself in human form to be the sacrifice, to be the king, to be the Messiah that he has promised. So in the midst of every generation of suffering, God's people experiences, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it's the church, God's presence is there to fulfill a promise to be with us in the midst of suffering. And then Jesus in John 16 says, actually, guys, It's better for me, or better for you, that I go away. Why? Because Jesus walking the earth, fully God, fully man, is not the fullest revelation of God's presence with humanity. The Spirit of God is actually better than Jesus in flesh. The Spirit of God comes and indwells in the hearts of all who believe. But guess what? That's not the end of the story either. Pentecost is a new revelation, a new outpouring of God's presence among the people. It's better than than Jesus in the flesh. Jesus in the flesh is better than the temple. Temple's better than the tabernacle. But as it gets better, it's ultimately getting better until the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Jesus is there in the center of the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, and every tear is wiped away in Revelation 21. Death and mourning shall be no more. God will fully, Revelation 21, God will fully dwell with his people and jesus will be the light there will be no more sun and in this eternal kingdom jesus the light is fully dwelling with his people and we are dwelling with him in his presence so what does god do about suffering well first he predicts it second he promises that his presence is going to be with us through it all when you walk through the fire this is isaiah when you walk through the fire i'll be with you the wave shall not overcome you uh, uh, Psalm 23, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of, de- of death, we know that, what, uh, that scripture gives us this clear story that when we suffer, God is there with us. Uh, G- uh, Jesus himself, Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every way as we are so that he could be with us in our weaknesses. So we're promised that you will suffer but we're promised that he will be there when we suffer. We're also promised that he provides the solution to all suffering. Not only does he predict and promise his presence, he provides the ultimate victory. Colossians 2.15 tells us that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Jesus, the great victory, the great victor over every enemy we have faced. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished on that cross? He meant that all evil had been defeated. He meant that death had been defeated. He meant that Satan had been defeated. He meant that the grave had been defeated and that new life had been established for those of us who turned away from the source of life. The penalty for sin was paid. That's the gospel. And new life was born because of the bondage of sin that was broken. That's also the gospel. We stand before Christ now not based on what we have done, but based on what he has done. Redeemed, forgiven. So that's the story of God and what God does about suffering. But what hope does this bring us in seasons of particular suffering? What about particular circumstances? Because that's really the question that we're that we're asking, the the problem of evil, see the philosophical term for this whole discussion is called the problem of evil. Really there's multiple problems that come. And the hardest problem is is actually that it hurts. The the hardest problem that comes from evil is not the philosophical one, it's not logical. The hardest problem is the, the problem that hurts, that cuts you to the core. The problem that keeps you up at night, suffering and grieving. And so what about these specific occurrences of suffering? Why does God not prevent them, all of them, or at least more of them? Aren't there circumstances that maybe that we look at and think, there can't be a good reason that God would allow that? First, we have to affirm God's sovereignty, that he knows all things. We affirm God's power, that he has power over all things. We affirm God's goodness, that his heart is good, his plan is good, his plan is perfect, and his ways are not our ways, but they're higher. But in the meantime, there are some evils that seem pointless, and we might wonder why he did not prevent them. And so what I want to do is I want to actually distinguish for a second between reasons for evil and purposes behind evil. Let's look first, just to have a little bit of fun here this morning, let's look first at what happened in our building. The reason for the great evil of almost burning the building down was because somebody made an irresponsible decision. There was an irresponsible action by a person, that's me, guys, that almost led to a significant tragedy. So that's the reason that the evil occurred. What is the purpose? I I don't know. Did I need a sermon illustration this morning? Maybe. I don't know. Did I need humbling? Maybe. Did I need to slow down and stop moving so fast? Maybe. It could be all of that. That I just need to be reminded that sometimes I make stupid decisions. Yeah, maybe that one too. But the purpose behind an ev- a particular evil circumstance like that is not something that we always know. And so we might know the human reasons for it without the divine purposes of how it, it unfolds within His full plan. But we can trust that He was not surprised. We can trust. That he was actually still sitting on the throne and still, again, Colossians, holding all things together. So let's let's look at Joseph. I'm gonna give you three J's, another preacher trick. I gave you three P's, now I'm gonna give you three J's. The three J's are Joseph, Job, and Jesus. So Joseph, Joseph experienced evil. What are the reasons? The reasons, practically speaking, humanly speaking, are that his brothers were jerks. There's another J for you. Uh, his brothers were jealous. And I mean, I'm just flowing with J's this morning. His brothers sold him into slavery because of their jealousy for, for their father's affection for Joseph. So there are real reasons. We have an explanation. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? Because his brothers were fallen, and sinful human beings. But what was the purpose? the purpose was actually God's provision of the whole nation. God had chosen Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and was building an, a nation for himself through Abraham and Isaac and used Jacob or and used Jacob and Joseph in this instance, Joseph as a part of that plan. And Joseph suffers evil and yet he's able to discern in the end, he looks at your brother It says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Okay, let's look at Job. J number two. Job, what are the reasons? The reasons for the evil that Job experienced is that Satan was actively attacking him. Satan was actively tempting him with evil. Satan was trying to get him to deny God. Satan was trying to cause him enough pain to where he would curse God. But what is the purpose? Well, the purpose that we see, the purpose that we see from reading the book of Job is so that Job's faith could be proven to Satan and Job's faith could be proven to to show God's goodness, that God's character, that the object of Job's faith, God himself, could be proven as, as so much greater than the circumstances of Job's life. That's the purpose, but Joseph understood the purpose. Did Job understand the purpose? No. Job was never given the purpose. Job was answered, but he was answered with, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I created everything you can see? God literally spoke to Job and didn't give him the answer. The purpose, the explanation. Was it okay for Job to ask questions? Yeah, I think it was. Was it okay for Job to defend that that he was not suffering for because of his own sin? Yeah, I think it was. Were Job's counselors right in all the counsel they gave? Obviously not. And God didn't ultimately give Job the answer to his deep philosophical question. Jesus, we know the reasons. The physical reasons were because in Jesus' circumstance, the Pharisees were the jerks. The Pharisees were the jealous ones. The Pharisees were the ones that sought to destroy Jesus. They called him a blasphemer. They stirred up the crowds against him. But was that the purpose so that the Pharisees would win? No, the purpose was to redeem a people to himself, was to atone for the sins of mankind was to uh, accomplish the great victory over death. That was the purpose of Jesus' death. But the reasons were simple. The Pharisees decided they wanted to stop him. Judas decided to betray him. The high priest decided to raise up the Roman government against him. Jesus knew the reasons being the Pharisees. Jesus knew the higher purpose in God's ultimate plan. And guys, here's the point. Jesus still hurt. Jesus knew the ultimate purpose. Scripture can actually say, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus knew that the pain and suffering of the cross would be worth it because of us. And yet it still hurt. It was still painful. He still was grieving at the cross, he still called out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He still, at, at the garden, said, if there's any other way, Father, make, make this cup to pass from me. He understood the purpose. And the purpose, according to Hebrews, gave same, some hope for endurance, but the purpose still um, didn't keep him from experiencing great emotional and physical pain. And so we know that every time we suffer, God is not surprised. Every time we suffer, there's some mixture of of reasons and purposes. We may not know the divine purposes behind every suffering. And sometimes it's easy to look at the sufferings we experience and think, what possibly, what possibly could God bring good out of that? See, that's the mistake we try to make. We try to oversimplify. And we try to say to the grieving, to the hurting, to the suffering person, it's okay. It's okay you're gonna be amazed by all the good that God does. And listen to me, the impulse is right. The impulse is right to see that God's ways are higher than our ways and God can bring good out of suffering. But to jump to quick answers, to jump to empty answers is not always helpful. And, And think about the mothers in Bethlehem that day. What answers would have helped them? What answers would have helped a grieving mother, a child under two years old, that was taken? She didn't understand the purpose. She didn't know what Jesus was doing. She didn't know that that there was another baby that was born that fled to Egypt. She didn't know the ultimate purpose being unfolded in that. She was just suffering. And so if you were hoping that I would this morning give you a reason why those babies were killed in Bethlehem, I don't actually have the fullness of a satisfying reason. I don't know exactly why each and every one of those women suffered. It fulfilled a prophecy, but boy, it wasn't a fun prophecy to fulfill. Ultimately, Jesus was protected, and we see the danger of the evil forces of darkness coming against Jesus, and that is an explanation of that that all of evil came out of hiding to destroy Jesus from the moment of his birth. We can see that. But ultimately, why those women? Why those children? Guys, I don't have a good answer for that. And I don't actually have a good answer for why the suffering that you are experiencing is why that's happening. I don't have a good answer for the women in Bethlehem any better than the answer I have for the, when we lost two children 10 years ago. See, why do I love this story of, of the mothers uh, of grieving and the voices being heard from Rama? Because 10 years ago, you guys know, we lost two baby boys. We suffered. We grieved. I don't know the particular purpose of everything that God was doing in and through that circumstance the tapestry of what God is is creating in this world and all of the people affected, it's too complex, it's too beautiful, it is too full to unweave one of those strands and fully understand every evil that has happened and to explain it away and say, here, look, this is what God is doing. But as creatures, that's what we wanna do. We wanna explain and understand everything. And I can tell you, Scripture does not give us reasons for every particular pain. It gives us a a big picture reason that because mankind turned from God and sin has entered the world, all of sin, all pain, all suffering ultimately goes back to the garden and goes back to the first rejection of God's commands. And we are all culpable, we're all responsible because we've all gone against God's commands. We know that as a reason. We know that ultimately God is going to bring an end to all suffering and evil. There will be no tears in the eternal kingdom. But for now, we grieve. We hurt, but we hope. Scripture promises that Christians will grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul tells us He does not want us to grieve as those who have no hope. Inherent in that statement is this promise that you will grieve. Something terrible is going to happen. Something's going to happen that really hurts. And you're not going to understand the purpose right away. You may never understand the purpose. But you can have hope. And you can have hope. Why in 1 Thessalonians 4? Because those that die in Christ will be raised again. Because death is not the end. And you can have hope when you experience pain, when you experience suffering, because you know that this life is not the end. It it may not be the full philosophical response we're all looking for, but it is the hopeful response. It is the biblical response. It is why we lit the candle of hope this morning because we recognize that what Christ is trying to do in us is he's trying to draw our eyes off of the things under the sun, what Ecclesiastes tells us. And to draw us into his perspective. This this eternal universe, this eternal perspective of the entire universe that he has created, where he is the high king where he is the loving God and the loving Father who has promised us that no matter what you suffer, he will be with you. And no matter what you suffer, he's gonna end it. And in the end, the fullness of his wiping your tears away will be the reason that hope can shine in the midst of everything. And so maybe you still have questions and that doesn't surprise me. Maybe you were hoping for more philosophy, more apologetics. Maybe we can have that conversation in a smaller setting. But for today, we end it at the Lord's table. And so I'm going to have the the band come up, and we're going to sing again. But after we sing, we're going to go to the Lord's table together. We don't have a literal table right now. We have the cups under your seat. And I want you to take that cup now. I want you to take that cup now, and as they lead us in a song, Some of you are going to be led to sing and stand. Some of you are going to be led to your knees. Some of you may come forward to the altar. I want you to worship as the Spirit moves in you. But whatever you do, I want you to hold that cup. And I want you to remember, in the midst of whatever you're suffering, or as someone around you, someone that you love is suffering, I want you to know Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And while we may not have the explanations for why a particular happened, we have the answer that because Jesus suffered, we can live. And that the ultimate suffering of payment for sins is no longer a suffering we have to worry about. But Jesus in his broken body and his shed blood has achieved the victory for us. So stand, kneel, Let's worship together as we prepare for the Lord's table.
1: We who walk in darkness deep now see the light of morning, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, a child to us is born. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold Straight the past Your King has come to die the land
0: This morning we received the Lamb, the lamb coming from Bethlehem. It was born for us, was raised to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, and raised again for us. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, gathered with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. and he took this great meal that told the great story of Israel's deliverance from captivity in Egypt. And he reinterpreted it to show the true meaning from the beginning was to show his own victory over sin and his own release of the captives from the bondage of sin and rebellion against God. And so now, as a part of the body of Christ, we who believe receive the broken body of Christ in Jesus' name. And now, take the cup. A reminder that this pure and spotless lamb was wounded for our transgressions. And by his stripes, by his wounds, by his cuts and bruises, by his shed blood, we are healed. So we now receive the blood of Jesus as atonement, as payment for our sins, and a sign of the new life we've received in him. Take it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now if you would, stand with me, and we'll receive the blessing of the Lord. Once the lamb was slain in the temple, the high priest would enter into the midst of the people And we'll proclaim the Lord's blessing. And so we receive that blessing today, not from me, but from the hand of God himself and through his word. We walk out into a world of darkness, into a world of great pain, and into a world of suffering. We walk out in hope as beacons of Christ's light and Christ's joy. And we walk out blessed in his peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for worshiping with us.